like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you All right, welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at Ubik by Philip K. Dick, his 1969 novel, one of his most famous, uh, most beloved novels, came on the heels of Dwayne Andrews' Dream of Electric Sheep, Maybe not quite as well read or far widely read as, as that novel. There's no movie tie-ins, although people have tried for quite some time, and I think there's there might be one in the works. Um, but really, an interesting novel that deals with uh, a lot of his you know his themes of entropy, his themes of consumerism. His uh, it's a great novel about posthumans, especially in the first half of the novel. And it deals with a lot of religious issues, especially as we get to the second half. It's like we start, we think we got a novel about posthumans, and it's a good novel about posthumans. The second half, we realize we're in a novel about about religion and God and the afterlife and and all that kind of stuff. So, in the first uh, quarter of the novel, we met Glenn Runstetter, who runs a prudence company. This is a company that arranges for. Anti-telepaths or anti-precogs called inertials to uh, enter a corporation in order to basically uh, fight off an infiltration of psi power. So it's kind of a spy versus spy type story. It's a very important service in a in a for corporations in a world in which psi power is real and precog ability is real. We've also met uh, Joe Chip, who is a high-ranking official in Runstetter's company, although he is very bad with money. And he's just met a new inertial named Pat Conley, who has the ability, it seems, to to shift through time and disrupt precog's abilities to make decisions. So she's a type of anti-precog with a talent of her own. And um, Runstetter has just gotten a job, a very big job, which he thinks will, will lead him to to the wholeness telepath. That's the major company that's that that provides telepaths for people. He thinks they're hiding out some telepaths on, on, on the moon. He thinks he's got a chance to, to snag them, to catch them, and to make a lot of money. So he's taking this job on the moon. So um, as chapter five begins, this is where we left off. We're gonna look at chapters five through eight in the, this episode. As chapter five begins, we're introduced to one of these these anti-size, one of these inertials they're called. And this one is named Tippy Jackson. She's an anti-telepath. And as we meet her, she's in REM sleep. Um, so she's in dream, the dream state of her sleep. And she's actually dreaming of locating some Hollis telepaths. However, they look like squirrels. And they quote Richard III. So it's, it's just a very bizarre dream. It doesn't really feed too much into the story later on. There is conversations about dreams by the the inertials later on and it seems that they have some special you know prophetic dreaming ability and people take their dreams seriously but i don't know if this particular dream is referenced directly again she's woken up by a call from runsitter who's calling in uh it's like i think it's 11 of these inertials who are going to be available for this job on the moon he originally wanted to commit all his idle inertials something like 38 of them 
to the job, but he got talked down to only 11 because the, the, the company, um, Stanton Mick is the one who runs it, he's trying to develop fa um, close to light speed travel. He doesn't want to spend quite that much money. He's pinching his pennies a little bit to Runster's disgust. Um, and the uneasiness about this job is that Runster doesn't really know what he's walking into. So he gets the call for the job and these inertials are supposed to be ready to leave at a moment's notice and and she does. So we shift back to Brunsider, who I think Tippy Jackson was the last one he called of all the all the inertials. So they're all gonna come very almost immediately to New York for a briefing about this job and, and to get ready to leave for the moon. Runsitter pays the scout who found Pat Conley. But he's still very uneasy about hiring her, mostly because he feels that Pat Conley is is it has she has a talent. It's not an anti-talent. He works. He's used to working with anti-talent. That's what he knows. That's what he understands. And Pat Conley has the effect of negating a precog's ability, but it seems that she does it with her own talent of of sort, maybe a talent that wasn't well known before. So he's really kind of uncertain about putting her uh, on the job. And that uncertainty is going to remain throughout much of the story about her. You know, what is she, what's her real agenda or whatever. Now, Runsteder feels his job is incredibly important. He, he thinks he, and this was alluded to earlier by Joe Chip, that he's like balancing evolution. And it's very important to mobilize these inertials to counteract the power of the Psy talented people basically to let normal people have a fighting chance to to have normal lives in in this kind of new world of post humans. He even says at one point that this that this job is his his contribution to contemporary civilization. He's very well loved by his 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 company. He's not a, a, a odious boss. He's gregarious. He's very uh, seems to be very, has a care about his employees quite a lot. He seems to be generous. Uh, he's, you know, he puts their security first and foremost. Um, everyone seems to like him, and, and that's an important aspect of, of his character, and it, it, and it does have a role in the novel, in that he does become a sort of a heroic figure for our characters after the halfway point. But we're introduced to this, this group of, of inertials who all, who all come, and we've we're, we're really got a, a weird gang of of like a motley crew of weirdos, essentially. In fact, here's what um, Dick writes about them. He eyed the individuals, this is Runster, he eyed the individuals who had begun to fill up his office. They gathered near one another, none of them speaking. They waited for him. What an ill-assorted bunch, he thought pessimistically. A young string bean with a, of a girl with glasses and straight lemon yellow hair wearing a cowboy hat. A black lace mantilla in Bermuda shorts. That would be Eddie Dorn. A good-looking older dark woman with a tricky deranged eyes who wore a silk sari and nylon obi and bobby socks. Francie something, a part-time schizophrenic who imagined that sentient beings from Beetlejuice would occasionally land on the roof of her Connet building. A woolly-haired adolescent boy wrapped in a superior and syndical cloud of pride. This one in a floral muumuu and spandex bloomers. Runs that are never encountered before. And so it went. Five females he counted and five males. Something was missing. And so then Tippy Jackson comes and that rounds out their, their 12, their 11 people. And then you got Joe Chip on top of that and Runsitter. So I think altogether it's 13 people on this, on this mission. And 
I don't know. Should we go over all these people? I, I think we do eventually get a full listing of these, but I think I'll talk about them as they they enter the story. They, um, you know, they all have a small role, but really the story is about Joe Chip, Runciter, Ella Runciter, you know, Pat Conley. A lot of these other people are there, and a few are more important than others. But I don't know if it's worth it to go through one by one these these characters you know because most of these people are just here to die i mean um let's go through their names so eddie dorn is one he's not really described in this chapter and then we have uh man al hammond he's going to be an important character he's he's african-american i don't know his uh, ability tippy jackson we just met as an anti-telepath john ild who's an adolescent boy uh, francisca spanish who's presented as a gypsy-like dark woman radiating a jangled tautness. So she's more like a, a kind of a psychic gypsy witch kind of woman. Then we have um, Pat Conley, who we already know. Tito Apostas. Don Denny. He's an anti-animator, so he's, he's, some of these have special abilities. Uh, to, or negate different psi abilities. Sammy Mundo, he's an anti-telepath. Wendy Wright. Wendy Wright is is important because it seems Joe Chip really has the hots for her. Um, you know, quote, it did not seem possible that Wendy Wright had been born out of blood and internal organs like other people. In proximity to her, he felt himself to be a squat, oily, sweating, uneducated nerd whose stomach rattled and whose breath wheezed. Near her, he became aware of his physical mechanism, which kept him alive within his machinery, pipes and valves and gas compressors, um, like that. So it's like an over-the-top uh, fascination with, with Wendy Wright. And then we have Fred Zafsky, who is a anti-pyrokineticist. So that's the group. So we meet them all in, in chapter 5. Now, there's one thing I didn't mention about this chapter. Mostly this is to introduce these, these Psy characters, most of whom are minor characters who just kind of come in and out of the story as, as Dick needs them to be there. But there's a moment when Runciter kind of challenges Pat Conley to kind of show what she can do. And instantly she does it. And she does it by basically changing reality. She's able to shift reality. So almost instantly they're in a different place. And Joe Chip is married to Pat Conley. So she changes it so Pat Conley is married to her. And they've been married for quite a while. And they figure out that they've been disrupted and moved out of time. And some of the inertials know better what was going on. And then after a while of kind of living in this alternate reality, she moves them back, but she keeps the ring. She keeps the ring she had Joe Chip buy for her as her wedding on her finger, even though everything else gets restored back, back to normal. So she's able to show off her, her power. Um, so we, he briefs them. So uh, Runster briefs them and then says they all need to prepare to go to Luna. So it's, it's these 11 inertials. It's Joe Chip and Runster are the ones going to to Luna. I don't think that's leaving anyone out, but there are a lot of minor characters in here that you don't really need to know. So chapter six, we're introduced to, again, to Zoe Ritt, who is the kind of the go-to person for this operation, the one who works for the Mick, Stanton Mick. Um, 
to hire. She's the one who was sent to hire them. And so she shows them around the Luna base where they'll be operating. They get, they're going to be staying in bunks, but they have certain appliances that aren't coin operated. So those are some amenities, free health care. It's kind of, it's presented as a very good deal for them. They're even offered joint rooms for inertials who want to sleep together, which is something Runciter opposes on kind of, um, you know, corporate grounds that they can't um, sleep together. The only thing that's not allowed are, is drug use, it seems, in the, in the compound. So it's, it's just a general meet and greet at the beginning of chapter six where everyone gets the, the, the lay of the land. Now, one thing that happens right away is Glenn Runster insists that Joe Chip figure out the inertial field. And it's very strong among the inertials, but it, he, he's, he needs to figure out how many inertials they need to actually counteract the psi field that's being generated. Because the idea is this company has been infiltrated by size. And so you need to kind of figure out what you're dealing with before you commit your forces. And Runster is very careful. Uh, not, not nearly careful enough, it seems, but he, he has this goal of being very careful about, you know, how many he invests in. Does he, you know, always bring in enough or whatever. So Joe Chip immediately starts trying to judge the, the, the field and he finds it to be null. He finds there to be no psychic field on Luna. And this, of course, terrifies Glenn Runster. Now, while Joe Chip is figuring this out, a man comes to greet them, and it's actually Stanton Mick, the guy who runs the, the company. And he gives kind of a greeting speech. He tries to shake hands with them. And just as Joe Chip figures out that there's, a, you know, there's, a, there's no side field that they need to counteract, Glenn Runciter realizes a trap, wants them all to leave immediately. But then the Stanton Mick person floats into the air and explodes and this is like a bomb so the, the bomb seems to have gone wrong it went up into the air and exploded um, and so that that man that was just an android that was that was armed with a bomb so uh immediately they find runster has been fatally injured in the explosion and they immediately start to act to get him into cold pack get him back to the ship so they can all retreat back to earth because if he's going to die you know, they want to at least put him into half-life so he'll have some sort of life left. So that's the point now. They're, they're trying to rush to get um, Runciter to half-life. Now, of course, there's two, op there's two possibilities of what happened here. One is that Holus was behind this whole operation, and he wanted to kill off a bunch of the inertials so he could be more free to act with his psi-talented people in various businesses. Uh, Runciter's corporation is the biggest prudence company on Earth and the most successful. The other option is maybe if Stanton Mick had arranged it, because of course it was his company, but they don't know, and in a way it doesn't really matter who is behind it. There are, there are various theories that are presented throughout the story about who is behind it and why, but right now they're in a panic mode and they need to get to the surface without, you know, before it's too late. And they actually get there without interference. And this is also very strange because, you know, the bomb failed to kill everyone. So why didn't it, why didn't they follow up with another attack? But they actually are able to escape without too much, without any interference. They get to the surface on this elevator and um, Don Denny, one of the inertials, thinks that whoever was trying to kill them screwed up and had only killed Runciter when he was trying to kill off all the inertials. But there's still the question of it then why are they letting them go? Uh, they broach, broach the question of whether Pat could have saved Runciter by going back in time. And she says, no, it's too late now to do this. 
again, she doesn't really go back in time. She she sort of is able to affect timelines in some weird way. But uh, she says, "quote Too much time has passed. I would have had to do it right away." And then they're all pissed off at her, like, "Why didn't you do it right away? That you're responsible for Runster's death." And this is another kind of theory that's going to overhang the rest of the novel about what is the role of Pat Conley. She seems to be um, a bit odd in her behavior here and the fact that her ability corresponds to so much that goes on in the second half of of the story. So that's going to be an overhang here. But basically this chapter, chapter six, is about the bomb attack and then the, the escape from the moon. So in chapter seven, they, they decide they need to get to Zurich. Zurich is where Ella Runciter is in Cold Pack, where she's in Half-Life. And this is where Glenn Runciter would want to be. So they, they go to call the, the moratorium. This is what they're called, the moratoriums where people in Cold Pack are stayed. Not a mortuary, but a moratorium. They call, but the phone book they get in the ship is like two years out of date. And this is weird because the ship is brand new and it shouldn't have an old phone book. But the phone book's from 1990, and the phone number doesn't work. This is the first element, as far as I can tell anyways, the first moment in the book where we see some uh, time shifting, where things start to decay, or things start to revert to earlier stages of things. Um, and that's going to happen again and again. And that's when we start to realize we're not in the same world that we were initially in. It's, this, is, this is the chapter where the novel begins to change into a very, very different story about progression about an entropy about kind of this even nostalgia almost and i'll talk about all these things things later but there's generally a general panic on the ship with all the inertials you got a bunch of them joe chip is taking command of the company because he's kind of next in line and he's assumed he's going to run the company now that glenn runciter is dead and once they get approval from ellen to make the job permanent and they eventually are able to call Vogelsang, who runs the moratorium, and they, they make preparations for Runciter's arrival. And the decision at this point, or the consensus among the group, is that they never should have went to Luna. That not only was it dangerous, it was completely out of character for Runciter to even go there. Joe says, I always was suspicious of Luna. He'll say, but not quite suspicious enough. The job was too much of a plum. He couldn't resist it. And so with the bait, they got him as they knew they would. So she, he thinks it's a bit out of character for Runcer to have even taken a job like this. So they finally land in Zurich. It's just like a 10-minute trip from the moon to Zurich. And the moratorium is beginning to, comes right to like the airport, well, whatever, the spaceport, and begins to prepare Runcer for cold pack and to go to the, the half-life to the moratorium where you can begin his, his half-life. But Joe, you know, he goes to the coffee machine and he has this very strange encounter with the, with the coffee machine. So first it's a normal Joe chip encounter with these machines, these homeostatic machines where, you know, they demand money for services, they talk back to you, they're very arrogant. You know, and he has problems even with his door. He doesn't have money to pay five cents for the door. That was earlier in the story. So he has to pay one, one dollar, right? One post cred, actually, it's called one. So basically, essentially, one post cred, and he has to charge it to the account. And they said, no, you need a credit card, and he doesn't have the credit card. So he actually kind of freaks out at this point, and he 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 screams at the at the machine. This is like a, 
a lecture to consumerism or to consumer society overhaul, all it seems. Um, one of these days, people like me will rise up and overthrow you, and the end of tyranny by the homeostatic machine will have arrived. The day of human values and compassion and simple warmth will return. And when that happens, someone like myself who has gone through an ordeal and who generally needs hot coffee to pick him up and keep him functioning when he has to function will get the hot coffee, whether he happens to have a postcard readily available or not. And furthermore, your cream or milk or whatever it is is sour. So he, he, I think he had to bum a post-cred off one of the other workers. Maybe it was Al Hammond. And he gets it. And the, the milk is sour. The milk is old. And then the coffee, even when he takes a close look at the coffee, the coffee is cold and molded. So like the, the, the phone book, the coffee even starts to revert back to an earlier stage. They also start to find that there's cigarettes. And everyone's constantly smoking in this novel. You know, their cigarettes are all stale. But that's all interesting stuff. But I, the, the speech that Joe Chip gives to the, the machine is, is such a great encapsulation of this anxiety and hatred over like the brutal indifference of consumer society. That consumer society offers everything to us, but it does it in this kind of passive-aggressive way. It's, it's, but it, it is also very oppressive in that it's always there and it's shoving advertisements in your face, whether you can afford it or not. And it's, it's something that's really on Dick's mind about consumer society. Much of this novel really is, is, I think, a metaphor for consumer society and obsolescence and just kind of the clutter and entropy that, that we accumulate around us while we, we're, we partake in consumer society. So Joe and Al Hammond discuss the future of the company, discuss, uh, hopefully, they hope, they hope to see Runster in Half-Life. The chances are pretty good. The chances are good that Runster will, will enter Half-Life. It's a fairly straightforward procedure. But many things are strange here. Like we saw the coffee go bad, the cigarettes are stale. And they even, at this point, have a conversation about how teeth used to decay. And they talk about going to the dentist which is something they normally wouldn't think about, but in the midst of all this decay, they, they, it comes into their mind that teeth used to decay before they were all capped with gold. And I think Al Hammond's teeth have like, they're all capped with gold and they have like a, a spade, a club, like from a diamond hearts, like a deck of cards on, on them. So people are kind of able to dress up their teeth that way. Joe really is anxious about what's gonna to happen to, to Runsitter, if he's going to survive, he's going to make it to Half-Life. So he decides he wants to call and hire a holist precog to learn if Runsitter is going to make it. And he also wants to sort of find out if he's going to be allowed to stay on as head of the company. So he goes to the phone, puts in an old, puts in a coin, and it turns out to be an old U.S. quarter, and it's rejected. And he looks at it, and it's like, well, I didn't have this. What, why is this an old U.S. quarter? It's actually like a, the old George Washington and, and Eagle quarter. So eventually able to trade it with a local guy who's willing to trade francs for a collector's coin. And then he's able to call Holus. And they, they, they have precogs, so immediately they say, like, well, we were expecting your call. And Holus talks to him, and Joe Chip, you know, of course, angrily denounces Holus as a murderer for, for, for trying to kill Runciter. Um, and that kind of ends that conversation. They come back to the moratorium and they get the news that Runster cannot be contacted in Half-Life. Um, he's not really able to be reached. It's not that he's not in Half-Life. He seems to be there. He has brain activity, but somehow they can't reach him. They can't communicate with him. So it's, it's kind of a weird state of affairs. 
they decide to give up for the day and go into a hotel room. Of course, their money starts to decay. It starts to revert to earlier stages of money. And Al Hammond has enough money to give Joe and some of the others enough money to, to get a hotel room. Um, but much of the money is really degrading to these older forms. Al, through this whole scene, has total disbelief that this man, Joe Chip, who has no financial sense, who can't keep even five cents in his pocket to pay the homeostatic door, is going to be running this great uh, and famous corporation. Okay, and this brings us to, to chapter eight, the last chapter we're going to look at in this episode. So Joe's in his hotel, and he picks up the phone at one point to make a call, and he hears Runster's voice. And here's what he hears Runster say. Pay him back, if at all possible. First, of course, it has to be established whether Stanton Mick actually involved himself or if a mere homeosimilaric substitute was in action against us, and if so, why? And if not, then how? From all previous reports, it would appear that Mick acts generally in a reputable manner in accord with the legal and ethical practices established throughout Seoul system. In view of this, and he goes on, and, and Joe tries to contact Runciter, call him. He somehow thinks that from Half-Life, Runciter is somehow able to, to contact them. Um, he goes and grabs a newspaper from the paint machine to try to find news of Runciter's death, and there's nothing in the newspapers yet about Runciter's death. Now, Vogelsong comes in. He's the guy who runs the moratorium. He comes in with news, and essentially his news is that there's no progress on, on Runciter, and that's a really, they're really baffled about why Runciter is not able to be active. Now, once again, we find that uh, Joe Chip has to borrow money from someone else. This time he's trying to borrow it from Vogelsung because he used up all his money, the money that Al Hammond gave him for the hotel room. Again, it's kind of a running joke in this novel, especially the first half, that Joe Chip just, despite having a job and a career and in a good corporation, he somehow can't like, hold on to his, his money. Um, but they end up searching the hotel room and they find, I think, I think Vogelsen says something about how a woman stayed with you last night. And Joe Chip doesn't have a memory of sleeping with a woman. So they search the room and they find the dried, mummified body of Wendy Wright. And here's how she's described. On the floor of the closet, a huddled heap, dehydrated, almost mummified, lay curled up. Decaying shreds of what seemingly had once been cloth covered most of it as if it had by degrees over a long period of time retracted into what remained of its garments. Bending, he turned it over. It weighed only a few pounds. At the push of his hand, the limbs folded out into tiny bony extensions that rustled like paper. Its hair seemed enormously long, wiry, tangled. A black cloud of hair obstructed his face. He crouched, not moving, not wanting to see who it was. And it turns out it's, it's Wendy Wright. They, they, they finally figure out who it is. Um, and the, the lesson here is that everything seems to decay. And this is what Joe Chip starts to put together. The antiquated money, the sour cream, the, the co molded coffee, the cold molded coffee, uh, the phone book, all these things. And Wendy Wright seems to also decay in, 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 in age. This seems to be a general principle of the world they're in. Now, obviously, they don't realize that they're in another the world. They don't know they're in a Philip K. Dick novel. So they start to think that maybe something happened to them in the bomb. The bomb wasn't just an explosion. It was also affecting them in a way. Maybe it was radiation from the bomb. And that's why they let them go, because they were all going to die anyways. So they are able to get all the inertials together, essentially, for a meeting. And they talk about this. And they go through all the 
the evidence they have, the stale cigarettes, the phone book, the money, the putrid food. And there's also another thing that appeared, and that's an ad on a match folder, like a random match folder had a personalized message to them, it seemed. And that's, of course, very unlikely that in a random matchbox, there'd be a message or a match folder, there would be a message to you. Now, the thing is, it seems that Runciter Associates, this company, advertises on match folders, but this isn't an advertisement. It is a personalized message almost. Or at least it seems to be targeting the events that just happened. Quote, this is what it says on the match folder. Mr. Glenn Runciter of the beloved Brethren Moratorium of Zurich, Switzerland, doubles his income within a week as receiving our free, free shoe kit with detailed information as to how you can sell our authentic simulated leather loafers to friends, relatives, business associates. Mr. Runciter, although helplessly frozen in cold pack, earned 400. So this is a really weird thing. Um, it seems to know who, that Runciter is already in cold pack and dead. It also places him as of Zurich, Switzerland, when we, we learn, later learned he was born in Des Moines and he, he operates out of New York. So why is this message there? They really find that, or at least Joe Chip, I think, realizes this. Maybe it's Pat, too, that there's really two processes at work here. One process of deterioration and another process that seems to be reaching out to, to them. And there's more evidence of kind of Runciter popping into their life. Some of the money is obsolete, but some of the other money appears with like Runciter's face on it. Like it's, it's a George Washington or whatever, it's Runciter. So one of the inertials, Don Denny sees, you know, that's what they are. They're manifestations of Runciter. That's the second process along with the decay. Some coins get obsolete, others show up with Runciter's portrait or bust on them. You know what I think? I think these processes are going in opposite directions. One is going away, so to speak, a going out of existence. That process, one. The second process is of coming into existence, but of something that's never existed before. So obviously they still really have no idea of what's going on, but it seems to be, they come to the conclusion that there's two processes going on. One is this decay, this projection kind of back in time or to, uh, it kind of works in two ways. One is they, they end up kind of shifting back in time. We'll talk about that in the next episode. But they're also this kind of decay of everything, this, this kind of rotting, this general kind of decrepitude of, of their existence. Um, so to test this, to test where they are, and I think the idea is already in some of their heads that they're, they're actually in half-life. So they said, let's go to a place we've never gone before. Let's go to a new city and see what happens. And so Al and Joe plan a quick trip to Baltimore because none of them have been to Baltimore. And they think, if we go to Baltimore, maybe we can you know, see something new or realize something about where we're at and what's going on. Is it just a subjective experience or is there some objective reality here? So they plan a trip to Baltimore. And that's where I'll leave us for now. We're at about over halfway through the novel already. Um, so what are the major things happening here? Well, we've shifted from a novel about precogs and, and post-humans in battle with inertials and kind of this corporate shenanigans and spy versus spy stuff, which is all a lot of fun. But we've kind of moved into a novel really about shifting realities, right? And it's, of course, that's a common Philip Dick um, theme. He's been playing with this since the late 50s. Um, and in fact, this novel in some ways, except for some of the theological aspects, feels almost like some of the 1950s novels. I'm reminded a lot reading this of like Eye in the Sky even. 
where you have different subjective experiences and weird worlds that people are in and this idea that maybe some people can control the world they're in, that, that they're not in control of their own universe, but someone is, right? There is a kind of a malevolent force controlling their, their universe. That's something he played with back in Eye in the Sky. So it feels in some ways like a throwback, but also feels very new and fresh because it really does, it's just so wacky and, and you know, Dick doesn't feel at this point bound by any of like science fiction conventions, it seems, and, and he just has a lot of fun with it. It's a fun novel, it's humorous, it's, it's actually a joy to read, I think. It's, it's one of my favorites. Um, but we're going to see where all this goes in the next episode. Uh, where we'll look at chapters. We'll just look at three chapters next time because they're all fairly long. We'll look at 9, 10, and 11. And um, that'll get us to near the end of the novel. So as always, leave your comments, leave your thoughts about the meaning of all these weird things that are happening to our, our poor inertials and Joe Chip. Leave your thoughts about that below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And um, I'll see you next time with part three of my review of, of Uber. You must search till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you.